0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. fool This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. This week, we're getting into the Olympic spirits with our biennial competition pitting nation against nation for economic supremacy. We're also going to talk about how your home can prop up your portfolio and pump up your retirement. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So, bro, what's up this week?
1: Well, as you may know or may not, how to factor your home into a retirement plan has sort of long been a conundrum among retirement planning experts. On the one hand, for most Americans, their home is their biggest asset, so you'd think, well, of course, you should somehow factor that into your retirement plan. On the other hand, it's also the roof over your head, and it hasn't always been easy to turn your house into cash, and you don't want to play it too crazy with it. You want to protect it, so a lot of folks have said, actually, you should leave it completely out of your retirement plan. So. Uh, People don't know exactly what to do with it, but a couple of articles I read recently provided what I thought were some interesting ideas of how to factor it into your overall financial plan. So The first article was published on MarketWatch.com from Mark Holbert, and the title gives you a clue, and that is, owning a home can give you a place to hide from a bear market for stocks. And this is actually was published in January, It's sort of an update of an, an article he has published previously and I actually mentioned in a previous episode. But what he did was, Hulbert looked at data from the Case-Shiller Home Price Index to basically look at how residential real estate performed during the 20 bear markets since 1952. And what he found was, there's only two examples of when housing prices also went down along with stocks, and one of those was only a 0.4% decline. The other one was the one that happened during the Great Recession, and it was a doozy. But on average, home prices go up when stocks go down. In fact, the Kay Shiller Index actually goes up a little more during bear markets and stocks than it does during bull markets and stocks. Now, so you might look, well, what about that most recent example? Does that mean that things have sort of changed in the relationship between the stock market and the housing market? And Hulbert actually asked Robert Shiller, who's the co-creator of the Shiller index, Kay Shiller Index, and he basically said, No, that was probably an anomaly, and going forward, this relationship between housing prices holding up during bear bear markets and stocks is probably going to hold true. Another interesting thing that Holbert pointed out, too, was that housing prices are pretty meaningfully, positively correlated to inflation. So, in other words, owning a house is an inflation hedge as well. Um, in his article, he suggested the way to sort of factor this into your portfolio, at least one way, would be by ETFs that focus on the construction industry, which is kind of an interesting idea, but I think really just owning a home and making it a goal to paying it off before you retire is another way to get these same benefits. By having it paid off or mostly paid off by the time you retire, you've built up that equity so that you could access it in retirement by using either a home equity line of credit or more commonly, a reverse mortgage, to use it either during maybe a bear market in stocks so you don't have to sell stocks when they're down, or if you have a big-ticket emergency like healthcare or something like that. Now, what most financial planners do recommend is that you don't rely on your home equity unless you absolutely need it, which brings us to the next article that I read. and It was a study in the Journal of Financial Planning by three folks, Peter Newworth, Barry Sachs, and Stephen Sachs. I won't go into all the details, but they essentially argue that retirees actually should consider tapping their home equity early in retirement, especially for the many Americans who are house-rich but cash-poor. By using their home equity, they rely less on their portfolios, and that gives their investments more time to grow. Perhaps the most interesting takeaway is they offer an alternative to the classic 4% rule. So, For those who know, that's how much you should be able to spend your first year of retirement. You look at just the value of your portfolio, your IRAs, 401Ks, and things like that, not your house. Take 4% of that, and that's how much you can spend in your first year of retirement. And then you adjust that dollar amount every year for inflation. They suggest that what you should do is take the value of your portfolio and the value of your home equity and divide that by 30. From a percentage point, that's 3.33%. So it's a smaller percentage, but of a much bigger pie for most people. And they think that's actually a better guideline for how much you should be spending and you should be incorporating that home equity into your regular spending in retirement. It's an intriguing idea. It's slightly controversial. I'm sure many people in the financial planning community will be debating it, but I still think it's a very interesting way to incorporate home equity into your portfolio value when you think about how much you can spend in retirement. So, for me the bottom line is this. So, among the three three of the bigger events that can derail your retirement, one is a bear market in stocks, inflation, or unexpected big-ticket expenses. And as a hedge against all those three, your house is a pretty good bet.
0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are, you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all of the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Cue the triumphant music, Rick! It's our second biennial Olympics of Foolishness. Joining us to award medals to countries in the categories such as robotics, e-commerce, and startup business is Brian Hinman. He's the CIO and portfolio manager. And Tony Arsta, he's also portfolio manager and senior analyst. Both are with Motley Fool Asset Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Now before we begin, Brian, you get to offer up some disclosure.
2: Don't mind if I do. My appearance today reflects my personal beliefs, not those of my employer, Motley Fool Asset Management, and I'm pretty sure that goes for Tony as goes well. Goes for Tony too. Me too. Yay. Yay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Everyone loves a good disclosure. So, um, yeah. So two years ago, we had our own little awards ceremony where we gave out medals in different industries, and it was sort of forward looking. We're like, okay, who's going to be the leader in energy? Who's going to be the leader in tech? And um, the U.S. did very well in our Olympics of foolishness, and so we wanted to invite you guys in to do it all over again. Uh, but I let you pick the categories.
2: Well, were were they, were they accurate? Like, I, do we do we need to be accurate? Do we need to get these right? That's a good question. I, I mean, I'd I like hope not.
0: I'd like for you to have an educated opinion. <laughs> okay, here. so
2: I'll fe- I'm now feeling the pressure.
0: Oh, yeah! You should absolutely be feeling the pressure.
2: My goal is to disagree with Brian and argue with everything he says.
0: <laughs> okay. You're awarding a medal in the category of cheese production, so I don't know whose opinion's going to have more weight here. So. Tony
2: is from yep. Wisconsin, so he is an authority.
0: All right, we'll get to that later. That is our that is our final medal that we'll be giving up. So Uh, Stick around for that. Uh, But before we get started, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history at The Fool?
2: Sure. Uh, I am coming up on my eighth anniversary in a matter of days, actually, which puts me in, I don't know, the longer... Half of full employees, which is pretty exciting. Well, tenured, yeah. It has gone quickly. Uh, I started in the publishing business on Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Options, and three years ago or so, joined the mo- team at Motley Fool Asset Management, managing our mutual funds and uh, and full money in our separately managed account business.
0: Cool. And Tony, how about you?
3: Uh, I am just days beyond my ten year anniversary, so oh. I've, I've been here a bit longer than Brian. I've been on uh, the the fund business since we launched that in 2009. And uh, before that, I was in the first group of the analyst development program, which I don't wow. know if we're still doing that, Aww. but uh, several people at the company have gone through that, including Brian.
0: Who did you go through ADP with?
3: It was Matt Arger-Singer, Brian White, Elan Moskowitz. Aw. a good group. Big, yeah.
0: big crew. How about you, Brian? Who did oh, you go yeah. th- through ADP with?
2: Well, the famous Jason Moser. Oh, oh yes. Uh, Man. And uh, I, don't, I think we're the only two that are left. Oh, you had, a, you had more of a Hunger Games <laughs> Yes, it was huh? very very Hunger Games-esque.
0: <laughs> That's so The Fool. Alright, well, let's get to the awards, shall we? The medals for these events in investing and economics and I don't know. The first category Brian, that you chose is robotics. Who? Is Well, actually, first, why did you pick this category?
2: This is a category that's really cool. People care about this. <laughs> Robots and artificial intelligence. I was say, is artificial all the rage. T- it's all the rage. It yeah. most certainly is. So let's get this started off. Uh, are we going bronze yeah, to gold? Yeah, let's do bronze to okay. gold. Okay. So uh, bronze to gold then. Bronze, we're going to start off patriotic, and I'm going to give it to the United States. Oh, I'm no, but, not meddled, the but not getting the gold. Interesting. Oh, okay. Hey, it is what it is. All right. <laughs> let, me, no, 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 let, let, me, let me get to the justification Okay. Where we've seen robotics really take off so far is in manufacturing, and and the leader is really in uh, the automotive sector. And so, the U.S. sells 15 to 18 million cars every year, and we've gotten pretty good at manufacturing them, Uh, and we use a lot of robots to manufacture them. So, that's really where uh, robotics got its start uh, in the U.S. And because we love our cars, uh, there's a lot of robots here. really what the gold or the, the bronze medal comes down to is it's more and more manufacturing coming back to the US. And so we are buying a lot of robots and we have a ton of innovation here um, to make those robots better and get smarter through artificial intelligence. The reason that we didn't score higher, Uh, Than bronze is because the U.S. uh, we love uh, protecting our jobs. Yeah, I was gonna (laughs) say robots
0: put people out of business. Exactly, and
2: so I I mean, I was just reading an article the other day that said nine robots took the jobs of uh, did what 140 employees would do, and that was uh, in an auto-specific application. So, (laughs) so you've got a ton of robots here in the U.S., but what keeps us from going higher is the fact that we're going to probably slow adoption because we love protecting our jobs got it
0: all right who gets the silver
2: uh, silver goes to Japan oh, uh, well, I was, so I was thinking they'd so. be gold
0: so now I'm
1: curious well yeah I know. So, so
2: if you think about uh, some of the defining cultural characteristics of Japan one of the first things that comes to my mind is just precision uh, they are a culture that prizes precision and when uh, you're, you're you realize how these robots are used uh, they are you know you, you think sort of articulating arms that have a very specific function that has to be precise.
3: Like playing ping pong.
1: Exactly. Among other things.
2: And so, uh, since the 70s, they've been uh, a leader in the manufacturing of robots. Um, And so, they have been at it for the longest time. The largest robot manufacturers reside in Japan and sell throughout the world, uh, and they use them themselves as well. What's really interesting is, uh, you think about the demographics of Japan. They They have an aging population, and so there's actually a need created to do more with fewer working people, that has put them in the position that they're in to get the silver medal.
0: All right. So who gets the gold?
2: Dun dun, 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 dun. The gold goes to China. China. And really, honestly, this is the result of brute force and resources. So. Uh,
0: and a triumphant winning spirit. He, and a tri- this, is, this is Olympic, that, Olympicsy. I'm yeah, trying that, to get some Olympics. That stuff. was very, that was very feel good. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, so you know, it seems like every week. Um, the government in China is coming out with a new master plan. Well, they have a Made in China 2025 plan, which is all about uh, manufacturing in a more smarter and, and efficient way. Uh, robot density, that's robot number of robots active per 10,000 manufacturing jobs. <laughs> such, a, <laughs>
1: such a metric exists. It's, yeah. a,
2: it's a real <laughs> metric. Now, China doesn't score particularly well in this. But well, if there's you, so
0: many people
1: there. If you, look at, the, if you yeah. look at
2: the trajectory, it's tripled over the last three years. And so, they are just adopting uh, robot. Robotics and artificial intelligence at an astounding rate, and very recently they purchased one of the the main uh, robot producers uh, called Kuka, which was actually a German company. So they are uh, they are clearly trying to become a player in the production of robots, not just the use of robots.
1: Due to their one child policy, which they've relaxed a little bit, they have their own demographic issues as well. So they're similar to China in that they have a very aging population.
2: Indeed.
0: All right. Well, before we move on from this category. Let's have a, a player profile, shall we? What, let's let's talk about one particular player that you like in this industry.
2: Yeah, this this player is sort of uh, it's it's like the Olympian who this is their maybe fourth. Olympics, okay, you know. So this is the the aged veteran, Uh, and so I want to talk about a company, a a Japanese company called Fanuc. Fanuc was uh, one of the earliest producers of of robots in Japan, uh, starting in the '70s. And uh, when you see pictures of robots in factories, and you see yellow ones. Those are the Fanuc robots. Oh, they have a very okay. characteristic yellow company. You see them all the time. I highly encourage you to go to YouTube and check out some videos on uh, f- the Fanuc robots. How you can do you find spell them. F A N U C. You can see them playing, uh, playing ping pong, like Tony was alluding to, doing just some amazing, amazing things. They have uh, the roots go far back, and their whole deal is uh, they build cookie cutter robots. And so they actually have robots to build robots, and then you program them to perform a specific task.
0: That's how the robot revolution begins. So it's very meta. It's robots (laughs)
2: building robots. Robots
0: building—that's a tagline. And then you give
2: them you give them a special tool, or you give them special software to do precisely what you want to do. So they're like a robot. Manufacturing line. Uh-huh. It's, it's really remarkable to see. Uh, anyway, they're one of the big four robot manufacturers, a very well run company uh, located in Japan.
0: Cool. Uh, have you guys seen the video of the robot they tried to teach how to downhill ski?
2: Yes. <laughs> Is it successful or not? <laughs> no.
0: Well, sorry, spoiler, no. Yeah. <laughs> But there's another thing to YouTube, too. Better
2: than me. It's going to make you feel
0: a little bit better about the robot uprising (laughs) because it's still a ways off if we can't get a robot to ski.
2: Now we know how to get away from them. Right? You're right. (laughs)
0: Good thinking. It's all going to be James Bond skiing down the mountain, getaways and stuff. Okay. All right. Our next category comes to us from Tony. Tony, the event that we are going to talk about now is e commerce. Why did you choose e-commerce?
3: Well, everybody knows about Amazon. Amazon is one of the biggest companies in the world, and it seems to be gathering all the headlines. Anytime Amazon even thinks about going into a new industry, people freak out about it. So, in the U.S., Amazon is very top of mind. Everyone is thinking about retail. In the U.S., though, only about 9% of retail sales are done online. Uh, Amazon is the biggest player there, but there's still plenty of room to grow. So, I think this is a category where we we are already seeing huge disruption in the world and we will see more over time globally we're at about 8% of all global retail sales are done online so the us isn't really much far ahead oh, of the global crazy. average that's crazy yeah Uh, So, before I get to the top three, I'll I'll go with the honorable mention, which is the host country of the Olympics, uh, South Korea. Oh,
2: yay! That's sweet, Tony.
3: (laughs) Korea was one of the initial leaders in e-commerce. They've had high internet penetration for a long time now, and about 16% of retail sales in Korea are done online. Uh, They always had a, a large home shopping culture through television, so moving to mobile was a natural transition for them. So that's uh, not quite in the in the medalist, but it, it's up there.
0: okay all right then let's let's hear who the bronze medal goes to.
3: The bronze I'm cheating a little bit and giving it to Argentina. Oh, okay uh, Argentina is not really the bronze. it's more of Brazil but. Oh. It's really just an excuse to talk about Mercado Libre, which okay. is headquartered <laughs> uh, in Argentina. It's something we're uh, always uh, looking to do okay. next.
0: Okay. So Mercado Libre is headquartered in Argentina, but it mostly serves Brazil. Right. More than okay.
3: more than sixty percent of Mercado Libre's sales are in Brazil. Okay. But they sell all over South America, Latin America. They're they've been called the eBay of Latin America, which I believe is a little bit short sighted. They're doing so much more than that. They have a payment system. They're they're just taking over all, all of commerce in South America. And that is an area where it is much lower penetration currently. It's closer to about 3% of sales, but has many decades of growth out of it.
0: Alright, and who's getting the silver?
3: Silver has to go to the U.S., uh, especially led by Amazon. I mentioned before that 9% of sales are online in the U.S. That makes it about a $300 billion industry. And it's growing I think about 20% a year, wow. so it's still high growth. So that 9% is increasing by about one percentage point a year, so next year will be closer to 10% and so on. So the U.S. huge market still has a long way to go.
0: Alright, and the gold goes to? Uh, China. China again! Oh
2: man, racking up the gold. Watch out for those guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're taking the, taking All right. the early Why lead. China?
3: Uh, China currently, we're at twenty three percent of retail sales in China are online, ah. and that's about six hundred fifty billion dollars. So more than double the U.S. And Alibaba is the by far the largest player there. They're about sixty percent of that market, I believe. So they're even bigger than Amazon in terms of merchandise sales. The reason we're at 23% of retail is a term that I like to throw in there. I think it should be an Olympic sport called leapfrogging. Okay. <laughs> so we've had decades in the U.S. of malls being built and retail locations. And what we have in China is none of that. Mm. So I didn't write down the, the square footage in the U.S., but the amount of mall space per person in the U.S. is, I, I believe, about five or six times as much as it is in China so, as an American, if you want to buy something, you just go down to the local mall. In China, that never really existed, and now that people have money, the transition online is happening much faster. It's already much larger than the U.S., and it's growing more than 30% a year, so it's a huge market with a huge remaining opportunity.
2: To Tony's point about leapfrogging, uh, China also doesn't have a, uh, an incumbent credit card system like we do here in the U.S. Yeah. People pay for everything there on their mobile phones. And so that link, mobile phones to e commerce, is an easy one to draw and supports that trend.
3: And the largest uh, mobile payment company is a company called Alipay, which is a partially owned subsidiary of Alibaba.
0: Oh, getting a piece every, way, uh, every yep. way through the process. Where does this trend end up, though? Because we talked about Mercado Libre in Latin America, Alibaba in Asia, Amazon in America. At some point, do they start? Think are they all three so massive that they will never like buy the other one or partner with the other one? Like where where do we go when it, the world is saturated?
3: Amazon, I believe, has nearly as much retail sales outside of the U.S. as it has inside. But if you look at where that is composed, it's mostly Europe, uh, developed Europe. Alibaba is trying to get into places like India, where they're actually competing head to head with investments made by Amazon. So, there is some head-to-head competition coming along. I don't believe uh, Amazon's position in the U.S. is being uh, competed against too hard, although Alibaba is trying to enter the U.S. Oh, really? Is it Walmart that owns a large No, they they own a a piece of another Chinese company called JD.com. So, there is a lot of competition coming on, but Amazon has a big lead. In China, there's also a big lead already with Alibaba controlling 60% of the market, JD.com controlling twenty percent, and the rest is up for grabs. So it's in places like India where we will see the most competition.
2: Yeah, and and the other side of that equation is is consumer habits. And uh, just because Alibaba is coming to the U.S. doesn't really mean anything because. most people in the U.S. already have the Amazon app installed on their phone. Uh, They they already know the keystrokes without thinking about it. And uh, they already have a trusted provider of goods that can be delivered to them same day or two days. So, it's it's not just availability that it would take to disrupt. It's also consumer habits.
0: All right, let's move on to our third category, and that is startups. Why did you choose startups?
2: Brian. This is also exciting to talk about. Startups. Uh, maybe are fun I, to talk maybe about. I'm just a dork, and I'm. This is being revealed right now. <laughs> no, our
0: categories last the, for the last Olympics were much more like. Energy tech. Whereas you guys took a much more creative approach to the events, which I appreciate. I just want to hear like why.
2: Well, I've listened to this show a couple of times, and it doesn't You're not, appear you have not, you like have there not are many rules. To
1: that, show. <laughs> <You have laughs> not. that is true. That is true. We
0: have some rules.
2: Uh, I don't believe it. For
0: no, a I No, I appreciate what you guys have brought. And again, I can't wait to get to cheese. So let's actually let's hurry and get through startups so we up. can
2: get to cheese. All right, well let's blitz through this. Uh so uh so the bronze medal in uh in in Startup Nation goes to Germany. Uh, and I think that I also chose this this category because I thought it would be controversial. There's actually uh a lot of different countries now vying for title of you know startup capital of the world, or the, the best place to, to launch a startup. So, uh, anyway, Germany, I'm going to go uh, the heart of Europe here and say that uh, there is, there's great access there to uh, investment, so dollars, uh, and accelerators to help businesses start. Uh, the German government uh, provides funding support for startups every year uh, to the tune of a couple billion euros. Um, because Germany has a bunch of large Uh, well-populated cities, um, not just one. Uh, There's plentiful, plentiful, fairly inexpensive office space, so just a place for new businesses to get together uh, and start up. Um, And then you think about what Germany is really good at. Um, They're good at manufacturing things, right? They're good at creating things. They're they're great at commercializing R&D. So it's not that you might necessarily see uh, the most uh, innovative, crazy startups like a Tesla or a SpaceX or something like that coming out of Germany. But when it comes to starting a business that commercializes a product, uh, they've got it on lockdown.
0: Alright, uh, so in your notes you included a pun. Do you, you're, not, you're just going to not include the pun on the show?
2: I don't even remember what I wrote.
0: Uh, Germany, edging out Sweden by a verst.
2: That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sweden actually has uh, the most startups per capita of any oh. country. So, uh, a smaller country, but also a startup hub. But uh, they're right. on the outside looking in, I think.
0: Yeah. Alright, and the silver goes to Silver? I'm
2: going small here. Singapore. Hmm. Um, hmm. It, this is, uh, I think, led by the fact that Singapore is a very advanced nation technologically. They have greater than 90% smartphone penetration. Uh, technology is sort of core to Uh, to that country as a whole. It's incredibly easy to do business there. Every year they are sort of uh, among the tops of places where it's easy to do business. And so, naturally, when it comes to starting a business, the lower the hurdle there, the higher you're going to score. And then the other reason I chose Singapore for silver is because it's only a country I think of like five and a half million people. The startup culture is so strong that it's very tightly packed there. And when you think about what makes you know, a good sort of startup environment. It's lots of creativity in one spot that can bounce off one itself. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, that's why I put Singapore for the the silver medal there.
0: All right, and final, who's getting the gold?
2: Might be home country bias here, but I'm going with the US and Yay! Silicon Valley. <laughs> uh, really, I think uh, you know Silicon Valley is proven, but there are there are uh, uh, startup hubs all over the US and it is, seems to be just getting stronger uh, record levels of venture capital funding. Here makes it an incredibly attractive place, and and the bottom line is I think that the U.S. has uh, more than many other countries a risk-taking culture. It is okay to try and fail here, Um, the the penalties for doing so are fairly minimal. Um, But I I really think it's just sort of it's becoming part of our fabric, and uh, you know being an entrepreneur now is a lauded thing, and uh, that seems to be strengthening.
0: Yep. Cool. All right. The final event, (laughs) cheese production.
2: The main event. In case
0: anyone thought I was joking, Tony really did pick cheese. Why did you pick cheese production?
3: I couldn't think of anything important to talk about, so I thought I'd talk about cheese because I like cheese and I like talking about it. (laughs) Don't we all?
0: All right, so who gets the bronze?
3: The bronze is France. Oh. So everybody knows French wines, French cheeses. Yeah. Uh, France produces about 1,700 tons of cheese per year, uh, which puts them well in the top three.
0: Uh, Do you have a favorite French cheese? No. (laughs) <laughs> you love them all.
3: I'm not too picky. Okay. You know. <laughs> I'm from all Wisconsin, right. so I like Wisconsin. Anyone?
0: I, well, then that you're kind of spoiling. Who's going to get the gold here? I think. Uh, I think a few. If we have any French listeners, they're probably a little upset that they got the bronze and cheese. But we'll keep moving. Who gets the silver?
3: Silver goes to Germany, which actually produces hmm, 2,300 Munster? tons.
0: No, not Munster. What's a German cheese?
3: Uh, they make all the all. None, none of these countries really stick to one kind. You've, you've got a, a good mix of everything.
0: Really? You right. can't come yes. up with one traditional German cheese. You think you're going to put up the category cheese and I'm just going to throw softball wedges at you? No.
2: I'm starting to question and this, a, whole, this whole Name one experiment. German <laughs> cheese. I like how you used wedges there. That was good. Yeah.
0: Name one German cheese, Rick. What was the matter with Munster? Isn't that German? I, think, I thought Munster was German.
3: Oh. But, but I'm, I'm not confidence. the cheese.
0: It's, it's English, isn't it? I'm not the cheese English. expert. Did you expect uh, me
3: to do research on this? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a Düsseldorf cheese.
0: A Düsseldorf cheese. All right. All I'm just right. Making that up. Okay, Germany. <laughs> Why again do you think for cheese?
3: They produce 2,300 tons of cheese per year. Okay, which, uh, that's a, a lot of cheese. G- is enough to put them up there. Uh, number one, the gold goes to the U.S., which produces 5,500 tons of cheese per year. Uh, the more than half of that comes from two states. California produces about twelve hundred tons a year. Wisconsin produces sixteen hundred so each of those two states alone is almost as large as as France and would be the fourth largest country in the world if they were standalone so <laughs> So, there's a lot of cheese being produced in the U.S.
2: (laughs) So, when Wisconsin stages its secession uh, argument,
0: (laughs) we're taking our cheddar with us. Right. right, Can Uh, you name a favorite American cheese?
3: My favorite is just cheddar. You don't need to go too detailed into it. It's a nice, sharp cheddar.
2: By the way, Munster is French, it turns out. Alsace Lorraine. Tiny oh. little town called Munster. Jeez, crazy. Okay, and well, German I'm cheeses sure are unrecognizable, except for maybe Limburger. <coughs> Limburger. Limburger, good
0: stinky cheese. All right, but you have also uh, a country to watch, which is very surprising.
3: Yeah, I think an up-and-comer here, although they are very far down the list right now, is Indonesia. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of companies making big investments in Indonesia right now, and the president of Indonesia has said he wants uh, foreign investment to support the dairy industry. And you have Nestle. Mondelez, Cargill have all made large investments, are all owning farms in Indonesia. The The consumption is growing by about 8% per year, and we're talking about a country that is fourth in the world in terms of population. So there's a, a lot of room for growth there. Uh, the production of, of all dairy products in general is, is, is expected to triple between 2012 and 2020. So we're already well along the path of production growing there. So it's far down the list right now, but when you look at the consumption of cheese and dairy products in general worldwide, you're looking essentially at North America and Europe. So you're
0: bu- it sounds like you're bullish on cheese. What, what percentage of one's portfolio should they allocate to cheese?
3: <laughs> Pretty good uh,
0: slice. What wedge? <laughs> what, what, yeah, a good slice? Okay, good. All right, guys. Thank you for joining us today for our second biennial Olympics. Do you want to stick around to talk a little bit more about the Olympics?
2: This has been so much fun. Let's do it.
0: Now, Brian, you have something really exciting to talk about, but before you do, you need to read this awesome disclosure.
2: You know, we have the best lawyers. We
0: have the best disclosures. Rick is going to make this sound so great.
2: I very much appreciate that they keep me out of jail. All right. Motley Fool Asset Management is a separate sister company of the Motley Fool LLC. Motley Full Asset Management launched the Full 100 Exchange Traded Fund, and its inception date is January 30th, 2018. In addition to normal risks associated with investing in equity securities, investments in the fund are subject to those risks specific to ETFs. Unlike other funds managed by MFAM, the fund is not actively managed, and we do not attempt to take defensive positions in any market conditions, including adverse markets. Likewise, we would not sell shares due to current or projected underperformance of a security industry or sector unless that sector is removed from the index where the selling of shares of that security is otherwise required upon a reconstitution of the index. As with all index funds, the performance of the fund and its index may differ from each other for a variety of reasons, including the operating expenses and portfolio transaction costs not incurred by the index. In addition, the fund may not be fully invested in the securities of the index at all times, or may hold securities not included in the index. Finally, fund shares may trade at a material discount to NAV, and this risk is heightened in times of market volatility or periods of steep market declines. To the extent the fund invests more heavily in particular sectors of the economy, for example technology, its performance will be especially sensitive to developments that significantly affect those sectors. Similarly, the fund is non-diversified, which means that it may invest a high percentage of its assets in a limited number of securities, and as a result, gains or losses on a single stock may have greater impact on the fund. For these and other reasons, there is no guarantee the fund will achieve its stated objective. For more information on the full 100 ETF, please visit full 100 etfcom
0: how you do a disclosure?
2: Oh, it don't get any easier. <laughs>
0: Thank that you. Was Thank fun you. Fun for me. So, <laughs> hey Brian, what is it that you wanted to tell our listeners all about?
2: So now as, that that's out of the yeah, way, yeah, as cited uh, in that disclosure, uh, Motley Fool Asset Management just we just launched our first exchange-traded fund. Uh, this is a really exciting development for us because, Allison, as you know, uh, the purpose of the Motley Fool, uh, our parent company, and Motley Fool Asset Management is to help the world invest better. And so, we are constantly looking for ways uh, to live that purpose. And um, the Motley Fool ETF, the Motley Fool 100 ETF, is uh, now, I think, the easiest way for an individual investor to get instant diversification and a simple way to buy the 100 largest, most liquid U.S. stocks that have the Motley Fool seal of approval.
0: Uh, and where can people go to learn more about Indus? I guess I mean they can probably go to their brokerage account today and buy shares of it if they wanted to.
2: It is actively trading. You can look up uh, you can look up trading uh, on Yahoo Finance or Google Finance or or your brokerage site. The ticker symbol is TMFC, the C being the Roman numeral for one hundred.
0: Oh, I wondered why that was the ticker. You know
2: we're clever. We're clever. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really. It's, it's really just sort of the next evolution in in investing. Uh, it's a low-cost vehicle uh, and instant access to uh, the great research that uh, the newsletter teams in our publishing business are doing on a daily basis.
0: Right. And as their research um, evolves and changes, and as the index that the ETF follows changes, then it'll be reflected in the ETF automatically. So That's it's right. always dynamically the Motley Fool's top 100 recommendations. Yeah,
2: it's re- it's rebalanced. The index is rebalanced quarterly. It's really pretty uh, pretty interesting. Tony and I's job in managing the ETF is really pretty simple because all we're trying to do is mimic what happens in the index, and the index is a reflection of, like you said, those uh, top recommended stocks in the published newsletters or in the full IQ database, which is where the newsletter analysts put all of their ideas. So Tony and I don't have to do much thinking here. We just sort of uh, sort of replicate the hard work that's done by uh, the astute Motley Fool analysts. It's my favorite kind of work. I was going to say, it leaves <laughs> you more
0: time to eat choco pies and I don't know what you do, Brian, for fun.
2: Uh, supervise eating choco pies. <laughs>
0: They, they do make a lot of crumbs. Uh, awesome! Well, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for talking to us about the ETF. I'm really excited. Well, I don't know if I'm even allowed, am I allowed to say I'm excited about it? You can be it?
2: excited about whatever you'd like to be excited about. I'm excited
0: about. about this ETF because, again, it's a low-cost low, to, a low cost way, the lowest-cost way, I I imagine, to get exposure to Motley Fool's recommendations. and We love low-cost here um, at The Motley Fool. Are you guys up for sticking around for a little bit uh, of Olympics trivia?
2: Sure, sounds got good. It.
0: Okay now it's time to test your olympic knowledge with some trivia and we're going to do this with whoever gets closest without going over all the answers are going to be numbers all right are We all right. ready? the very best olympic sport is curling i think we can all agree and it's actually one of the oldest team sports in the history of the world it's dominated by countries like Norway, Canada, and Switzerland, but it was actually invented in what century in Scotland? <laughs> Scotland.
1: Which century? Which
0: century? All right, what do you got, bro? 15th,
1: 12th, 16th.
0: So it actually is seventh. A, It's Oh, sorry, Rick's doing it too. You bet. Okay. Uh, it's actually the 16th century. So all if you right. get it on the Nailed nose.
2: It. Whoa. Right. Pretty sure it job. was the 7th that just wasn't documented.
0: Yeah, right? So I don't know how. The internet was
1: slower back then. (laughs) Okay.
0: Uh, Yep. So, yes, it's one of the oldest team sports in the world. And to all of our listeners, if you ever get a chance to do it, I highly recommend it. So, And you guys, too. We're going to have a Motley Fool curling trip next year. Not this year. We're going to do it. All right. Curling is the slowest sport in the Olympics, reaching a top speed of 1.74 miles per hour. The fastest sport is downhill skiing. What is the world record speed for downhill skiing? In miles per
3: hour without going over
0: without going over
3: skiing is faster than luge
0: you'll find out in a little bit all right but skeleton was the fastest you'll find out are we good who yeah. wants to go first i'll go what okay.
1: 112 miles per hour okay 92 okay
3: 95 1 mile per hour <laughs> doing the Price Is Right strategy.
0: Tony got it again. It's 100.6 miles wow. per hour. Wow! So uh, most skiers max out at around 80 or 90 miles per hour. The second fastest sport is the luge at 95.69 miles per hour, and the bobsled comes in at 95. Note, there is a sport, a skiing sport, where you just go straight down a mountain. As you know, with downhill skiing, you have to go around gates and stuff. Um, it's called speed skiing, but the Olympics decided that it's stupid. Uh, the record is an Italian who went 158 Holy miles per yeah. hour. Wow.
1: So I sort of caught, could have won. I mean, I had the highest number there. Now, I had 112. Oh, but you, yeah, went, you went over.
2: But I went over for that one. You but if we were talking about that one. You would have not... won the stupid skiing. Yes, exactly.
1: Anything related to stupid, I, I think got that, it. I man.
3: think that's called drunk skiing.
0: <laughs> How many countries participated in the first Winter Olympics held in Chamonix, France in 1924? Bro, you want to call it?
1: 17.
2: 36. 7. 12.
0: Rick got it. It's sixteen.
2: Wow, I'm getting destroyed.
0: Basically, it was a lot of Europe, Canada, and the U.S. Medals were awarded in sixteen events, including curling, skiing, etc. One you don't see anymore is a precursor to the biathlon. It was called military patrol, and a team. It was a team sport that combined country ski, cross-country skiing, mountaineering, and rifle shooting. And there are 93 countries participating in Pyeongchang this year, including one very oiled Tongan.
1: So. yeah I've seen his picture
0: yeah <laughs> all right this year the gold medal is comprised of 580 grams of silver and just six grams of gold plating how much is this worth in scrap metal
3: Can you say it again? you said 580 and
0: 580 six? in silver and six in gold and I checked this this morning so six oh, i missed the unit grams grams all right, bro, what do you have?
1: 999
0: $400, uh, $1,200, $1,201. <laughs> is it, we're saying dollars, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. uh, Brian got it.
2: Oh, good job. 574 and
0: 94 uh, 24 at Garrett Gold is at 43 and a half a gram, and silver is at almost 17 a gram. Uh, that's a B, not an art. Okay. If you were to auction off a metal, however, well, you're going to get a lot more. Uh, one of the Miracle on Ice 1980 Ice Hockey Gold Medal, uh, it was awarded to Mark Wells. It sold for $310,000 in, in 2010. Oof. One of the mm. four Olympic gold medals won by Jesse Owens in 1936 was snapped up for a record $1.47 million by the billionaire investor Ron Burkle in 2013. Generally speaking, medals from the Summer Olympics bring in $5,000 for a bronze on up to $10,000 for a gold. Winter Olympic medals are more rare because of fewer sports, and they bring in 10 dollars to $30,000. Wow! wow. Alright, Tony may know what this is, because Tony has been to Oh,
3: my favorite. (laughs) I buy boxes of those every time. Do you know what this is? It's a choco pie.
0: This is a choco pie. It is essentially a moon pie. We would know it more familiarly as a moon pie. It's like two, two cookies with marshmallow in the middle and it's all coated by chocolate. All right. Are you ready? This treat, called a choco pie, will cost you 50 cents in South Korea. How much does it cost on the North Korean black market?
2: In, so, we're converting to dollars. U.S. dollars. U.S. Okay. dollars.
1: Gosh, that's a tough one, because they don't have any money. How much could they afford to pay? All right, I'm going to go with
0: $99. Really? Yeah. Okay, Brian. <laughs>
2: that sounds absurd. <laughs> Who could afford <laughs> that? $3.50. Exactly. I had $2. I'll go 7
0: Ah, Rick got it. Wow. $10. Choco
2: pie inflation.
0: So, This humble snack cake, again, it's made in South Korea, and it became popular in North Korea when as many as 52,000 were employed in South Korea at factories near the border. So they would wake up, they would walk a really long way, go work in a South Korean factory, and go home. They weren't allowed to be paid in overtime, so instead they received choco pies, which they would take home (laughs) to their family and sell on the black market. But they were banned in 2014 because it was from South Korea, and people in North Korea were loving it too much. Uh, So Again, they were banned in 2014. They would cost you about $10. This was compared to the average annual income in North Korea at the time was roughly $1,000 to $1,000 a year. In December, just just this last December, a North Korean man was shot while trying to defect to South Korea. Did you hear about this? Mm -mm. He underwent two major surgeries, barely survived, and when he woke up, the first thing he wanted to eat was a choco pie. And the company has promised him a lifetime supply. So,
3: wow. They are delicious.
0: Well, you get to find out. Do you want to try it?
3: I've had so many of them. Um,
0: right.
1: I gave them up for Lent, but so I'll let uh, these fine gentlemen have them. All right, one. all
0: right. Oh, you gave up what for Lent?
2: Uh, well, gave, not specifically choco pies. Just good. Tony knows quite a bit about Sorry. choco pies. A,
3: a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. the company that makes choco pies is a company called Orion. A couple of years yep. ago, they, they launched some banana Sorry. flavored choco pies. Feel free to try. And I had some shipped to me from Korea uh, just so I could try it and, yeah. and call that research.
0: Um, yeah, <laughs> did, so
1: this did the Molly Fool
3: pay for that? No. Have okay. some choco
2: pie. That, that's feet on the street research. That's the kind of stuff we do at Molly Fool <laughs> Asset Got Management. You. Absolutely. Gotcha.
0: Absolutely. So yeah. So this um, this choco pie was actually um, a Valentine by a kid in my kid's, uh, by a kid in Hannah's class. So when I saw it, I was like, I'm taking that in tomorrow because I knew all about the choco pie stuff. Sorry, my voice is still really sick. Our <laughs> listeners probably picked up on that.
2: Is Hannah still crying?
0: No, she didn't mind. I was like, Hannah, can I take this to school? And she was like, okay. Or take this to work. And she was like, okay. So, yeah, so that is the choco pie. Um, For the win. For the win. Actually, do we have a clear winner?
1: Tony, is he? Tony, yeah, that's pretty good. Rick got two, and
0: Tony got two, and Brian got one. I got
1: nothing. Big old goose egg. Big old
0: zippy. (laughs) All right. That's the show. Traveling Uncle 50 Billion Cent sent us our first card from New Jersey. I can't believe it took us that long to get one from New Jersey. Apparently, the Statue of Liberty is actually in the Garden State. Who knew? Okay, Rick knew. The show is edited perseveringly by Rick Angdal. Our email is answers at uh, I think we have a mailbag episode coming up, so feel free to uh, get your questions in. I think we're probably going to have a uh, an analyst like maybe Jason Moser join us to help tackle some of your investing questions as well. So anyway, again, email answers at fool.com. for Robert Brokamp. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.